Chapter 3, Life's Diversity and Resilience, Metabolism, Species, Catastrophes. The diffusion of life is a sign of internal energy, of the chemical work, work life performs, and is analogous to the diffusion of gas. So then the newborn earth first reared her shrubs and herbage, then in turn in order due did bring to birth the tribes of mortal creatures risen in many ways by means diverse. At this point, it might be appropriate to have a chapter about life's evolution, a fairly detailed chronological account of the biosphere's complexification that would pause at major milestones and emphasize the emergence of first organisms. Development of biophotosynthesis, appearance of the first multicellular bodies, diffusion of land plants, diversification of animals, and rise of mammals and hominids. But the emphasis of this chapter will not be chronological and paleontological, but functional. The first reason for this choice is a surfeit of recent books on evolution. Those published since 1995 cover basic processes, selection, competition, symbiosis, in all-encompassing narratives. Others offer more detailed examinations of the quality and adequacy of the fossil record and of the rise and diffusion of major phyla and classes. Even more importantly, I do not want to get enmeshed in contrasting and evaluating a great deal of uncertain and often contradictory evidence, some of which may be disproved in a matter of years. A recent re-examination of the overall quality of the fossil record does not support the logical expectation of diminished quality of preserved species backwards in time for the, from the Phenozoic era, Ian. Benton et al. 2000 based this conclusion on congruencies between stratigraphy and phylogeny, Although ancient rocks preserve less information than do the more recent ones, scaling to the stratigraphic level of the stage and the taxonic, taxonomic level of the family shows a uniformly good documentation of life during the past 500 million years, 540 million years. Protozoic evidence is a different matter as reliable dating of many earlier evolutionary milestones remains elusive and hence an account stressing particular chronologies rather than processes may rapidly become indefensible. This reality is perfectly illustrated by recent claims regarding the origin of animals. For decades, a seemingly sudden, in geological senses, appeared appearance of new life forms has been dated to the early Cambrian the period whose beginning is usually given as 570 million years ago. Standard accounts had this Cambrian explosion beginning about 544 million years ago with only a few tens of millions of years elapsing before virtually all of the animal lineages known today showed up in the fossil record. Discovery of the Ediacaran fauna, soft body organisms named after the site of their first finds, the Ediacara Hills of South Australia, push that great divide back just a few million years. New measurements published in 1993 shifted the onset of the explosion to 533 million years and set its duration to just 5 to 10 million years. Grotzinger et al. concluded that simple discoid animals might have appeared at least 50 million years earlier. An attempt to estimate the divergence times for main animal phyla by comparing genes produced dates up to 1.2 billion years ago Ayala rejected this estimate for methodological reasons and suggested a date of about 670 million years ago for the divergence of protosomes, and 600 million years ago for the appearance of chordates. Then the discovery of tiny fossil animal embryos and adult or embryonic sponges in the Daoshdo phosphorites in southern China placed these animals at 570 million years. Daoshdo, the sponges are tiny, 
a mere 150 to 750 micrometers in maximum dimension. And other animal fossils from the site showing cells in a cleavage embryo are no more than 0.5 millimeters in diameter. The exquisite preservation of such small features is due to calcium phosphate. Later, in 1998, came a claim that burrowing worm-like animals moved through shallow sea sediments 1.1 billion years ago. The wiggly grooves found in a central Indian sandstone may be of inorganic origin, but the gap of 400 million years between the Indian find and other well-identified worm burrowings may be explained by a later extinction of the earliest species. Plausible dates of animal origins thus differ by more than 500 million years. Major evolutionary milestones, be they generally accepted or very much contested, will be noted in the context of explaining life's metabolic arrangements, describing the increasingly more sophisticated attempts at reconstructing the tree of life and assessing the impact of recurrent planetary catastrophes. As explained in Chapter 2, biochemical similarities and differences of metabolic pathways define two fundamentally distinct modes of the planet's life, autotrophic and heterotrophic metabolism, and their various modifications and enormous specific differentiation encompassed by these basic functional modes is the most obvious demonstration of life's variability. Recent genetic analyses have made it possible to trace the kinships of all organisms at close to their evolutionary beginnings. Explanation of these advances and uncertainties will take up the second part of this chapter. Finally, a modern look at life's diversity must deal with the role of recurrent catastrophes whose global impact has shaped the development, diffusion, and survival of species, no less than have the eons of random mutation. Studies of these evolutionary discontinuities have yielded many fascinating as well as contentious conclusions and a better understanding of the frequency, scale, and duration of these events, ranging from relatively abrupt climate changes to globally devastating encounters with extraterrestrial bodies is imperative for appreciating their role in the biosphere's past and future evolution. Metabolic paths. Metabolic possibilities arise from permutations of key aspects of cellular nutrition, energy sources driving the process, substrates that donate electrons, and compounds that supply carbon. The nomenclature devised for microorganisms at the Cold Spring Harbor Symposium in 1946 has been extended to all life forms, and it provides accurate definitions by combining the prefixes photo, chemo, used to identify energy sources, with the terms litho and organo, which describe electron donors. Organisms energized by solar radiation are able to convert electromagnetic energy into the high-energy phosphate bonds of ATP are phototrophs. Those tapping chemical energy, be it of simple inorganic compounds or organic macromolecules, are chemotrophs. Organisms that derive electrons from elements, such as H2S, or simple inorganic compounds, water and hydrogen sulfide, are lithotrophs, whereas those using complex organic substrates, be they protein, lignin, and dead biomass, or bacteria, bacteria or fungi decomposing biomass, or carbohydrates and grasses grazed by ungulates or grains eaten by people, are organotrophs. Land plants, algae, phytoplankton, and cyanobacteria are thus photolithotrophs. So are the green purple sulfur bacteria, which use hydrogen sulfide rather than water as their source of electrons. Photoorganotrophs require solar energy, but use organic compounds. Purple non-sulfur bacteria can switch to this mode from anaerobic photolithotrophy. When they do so, they become heterotrophic, whereas plants and cyanobacteria deriving their carbon from CO2 are autotrophic. 
Most bacteria and all fungi, as well as all animals, are chemoorganotrophs gaining ATP by oxidation reduction reactions. Higher organisms gain ATP by using complex organic substrates, as, such as electron donors, as well as sources of carbon, and oxygen as electron acceptors. Such common bacterial genera as Bacillus and Pseudomonas do the same, but many chemoorganotrophic bacteria use nitrates or sulfates as their electron acceptors. And there are also chemolithotrophs, remarkable organisms that thrive in the complete absence of any light and all organic matter. All they require is the presence of CO2 and an electron acceptor, most commonly O2, but some use CO2 or nitrate, together with an oxidizable element, H2 or iron, or inorganic compound, hydrogen sulfide, nitrate, nitrite, nitrifying bacteria that oxidize ammonia to nitrites and nitrates and nitrites to nitrates, sulfur bacteria that oxidize sulfur sulfides, and methanogenic archaea are the biosphere's most important chemolithotrophs. Their metabolism is indispensable for the continuous functioning of biogeochemical cycles of carbon, nitrogen, and sulfur on scales ranging from local to global. Photosynthesizers no other process has shaped the evolution of the biosphere as much as oxygen-producing photosynthesis, whose origins go back to the early Archaean Eon. Excellent accounts of advances in the far-from-accomplished challenge of unraveling the details of photosynthetic process can be found in Robinovich, Myers, and Somerville. The last author calls the mechanism underlying the photolysis of water the central enigma of photosynthesis, whose solutions remain a challenge for the 21st century. We may never be able to reliably reconstruct any events predating 4 billion years, but as already been noted, the first preserved traces of photosynthetic activity are as old as the oldest identified rocks from 3.5 to 3.8 billion years. If the early Archaean atmosphere had no oxygen, then the first phototropic prokaryotes had to assimilate carbon in ways akin to those of the still extant anoxygenic bacteria, which were pushed into marginal niches by high levels of atmospheric O2, resulting from the later evolution of water-splitting photosynthesis. Both obligatory and facultative anoxygenic phototrophs can be found in four bacterial phyla, chromatidaceae, purple sulfur bacteria, and chlorobethaceae, biasaceae, which thrive particularly in sulfur springs, with the green chlorobium also appearing in mass accumulations, can use hydrogen as their hydrogen donor, but prefer to use reduced sulfur compounds, mostly hydrogen sulfide and thiosulfides thiosulfates, that's S2O3. Sequencing of genes involved in photosynthesis and phylogenetic analyses of the major groups of photosynthetic bacteria indicate that green non-sulfur bacteria, or heliobacteria, are the last common ancestors of all photosynthetic lineages. So just as a note, I think I got that wrong in the earlier notes. So I was saying anaerobic bacteria were essentially metabolizing carbon and sulfur in the presence of oxygen but not using it. And I think that's incorrect. I think that this comment about being pushed into marginal niches by levels of atmospheric O2 are, they're anaerobic unless they're facultive. And in this case, we're not talking about facultive. Rhodospilaraceae, purple non-sulfur bacteria displaying vivid colors ranging from the red of Rhodospirillium rubrum the brown of Rhodosundomonas sulfidophilia, and chlorofexaceae, green gliding bacteria, the earliest diverging branch of the bacterial tree, rely almost exclusively on hydrogen as their donor of electrons. 
All phototrophic bacteria can photoassimilate such simple organic substrates as acetate or butyrate, but CO2 is their usual source of carbon. Ancient and oxygenic phototrophs would also have needed some protection against relatively high levels of ultraviolet radiation. A, film, a few millimeters of translucent mud or dead organic matter would suffice. During the late 1970s came the discovery of bacteria that perform anoxygenic photosynthesis under aerobic conditions. Oh, well, never mind. I was correct. These organisms grow heterotrophically, but they can use their bacterial chlorophyll to harvest light as a source for auxiliary energy when their respiration is suppressed because of insufficient amounts of appropriate substrate. Colbert et al. used newly developed infrared fast repetition rate fluorometers to search for evidence of bacterial photosynthetic electron transport and discovered that aerobic bacterial photosynthesis is widespread in tropical surface waters of the eastern Pacific Ocean, as well as in temperature, temperate coastal waters of the northwestern Atlantic. But if the Archaean atmosphere already contained more than a trace of oxygen, see chapter 2, then the earliest phototrophs might have been more like today's cyanobacteria. Many strains of these prokaryotes can perform an oxygenic bacterial-type photosynthesis in hypoxic or anoxic sulfide-rich environments, such as hot springs, ocean sediments, etc., and then shift to water-splitting O2-releasing photosynthesis in aerobic niches. As noted in Chapter 2, oxygen-evolving cyanobacteria present in the fossil record from about 2.8 billion years ago were thriving in the Archean Ocean, forming mat-like growths in shallow marine environments and leaving behind fossil stromatolites. Old doubts about biotic origins of stromatolites were revived by an analysis that showed the sedimentary laminae obeying the same power law over three magnitudes in size. Although abiotic processes may explain the existence of stromatolites, there is still the preponderance of evidence to argue that most of them are of biogenic origin rather than of being abiotic fractal frauds resembling living organisms. The shift to oxygenic, water-cleaving photosynthesis freed bacteria from their dependence on limited amounts of reduced sulfur, iron, manganese, and hydrogen, and methane, and provided photosynthesizers with an unlimited source of electrons and protons. Damaris estimated that microbes dependent on hydrothermal energy could sustain an annual fixation of less than 25 MTC, million tons carbon, megatons carbon, Whereas oxygenic, oxygenic photosynthesizers, able to tap a virtually unlimited supply of hydrogen from water, could eventually fix about 100 gigatons carbon per year. Dismucus et al. suggested that bicarbonate, formed by the dissolution of CO2, was the thermodynamically preferred reductant before water in the evolution of oxygenic photosynthesis, and found that manganese bicarbonate clusters are highly efficient precursors for the assembly of the tetramanganese oxide core of the water-oxidizing enzyme. Descendants of the earliest cyanobacteria continue to fill almost every aquatic and terrestrial niche. They are abundant as both unicellular and colonial forms, the latter shaped as slender filaments, as strings or clumps whose massive blooms are discernible from space, trichodesmium, as spheres bonded by secretions in gloiocapsia, or as scum layers in lingia. They also live symbiotically with numerous species of protists, sponges, worms, and aquatic and land plants, anabena symbiotic with floating azola ferns, sphagnum moss, tropical gunera, and cycas. Although clearly prokaryotic, cyanobacteria have an elaborate system of photosynthetic lamellae, 
analogous to thylakoid membranes of plants, containing pigments that colored all the cells, not just bluish-green, but also green with like edible spirulina, yellow-red in oscillatoria, and even deep blue. Cyanobacteria are able to fix atmospheric nitrogen, but as nitrogenase, the enzyme catalyzing this conversion cannot tolerate O2. They do so in heterocysts, or cells with thickened walls creating anaerobic microenvironments. Nitrogen fixing ability makes cyanobacteria well adapted for oligotrophic conditions of surface ocean waters. Unicellular Prochlorococcus, the smallest and most abundant photosynthesizer in the world's ocean, was discovered only in 1988, and it contributes 30 to 80 percent of the total primary production in oligotrophic waters. Colonial Trichodesmium, which can produce toxic blooms, is plentiful in tropical and subtropical seas. The Red Sea owes its name to the colored tufts or puffs. Ignorance about particulars of photosynthetic evolution extends through the late Archaean to the early Proterozoic. Grapania, the first fossil alga to grow in long cylindrical coils, dates to 2.1 billion years ago, which means that eukaryotic prototrophs had to evolve sometime during the preceding 500 million years. One solid phototrophic ability of plants is not their original evolutionary achievement, but rather an import. Chloroplasts of green algae, red algae, and glucophytes were derived directly from cyanobacteria through a primary endosymbiosis. We'll address that more in Chapter 8. The fossil record shows microbial mats declining and green and red algae increasing in abundance only about 1 to 0.9 billion years ago. New molecular evidence suggests that the colonization of continents by eukaryotes was preceded by a symbiosis between phototrophs and fungi and that land plants may have appeared by 700 million years ago, predating the Great Cambrian radiation of animals. Both comparative morphology and rRNA sequencing, explained later in the next section, strongly support the monophyletic origin of land plants. They indicate that both of the two great classes of land plants, bryophytes, non-vascular plants without distinctive water-conducting tissues, including liverworts, hornworts, and mosses, and tracheophytes, vascular plants, including lycopods, horsetails, ferns, and sea plants, evolved from karyophytes, or freshwater green algae whose fossils are documented from more than 600 million years ago. Trachophytes use phloem, complex single cellular conduit system to distribute large amounts of sugars and other photosynthates from their places of origins to such sinks as developing leaves, flowers, root tips, where they're used to build new tissues. Plasmodesmata are cytoplasmic channels between cells that readily transmit small solutes, inorganic irons and sugars, but restrict the movement of large proteins, mRNA, and organelles. The earliest land plants may have appeared during the mid-Ordovician, after 450 million years ago. Comparisons of three mitochondrial introns, or pieces of silent DNA within genes, were used to identify liverworts as the earliest land plants. Introns are present in all vascular plants, hornworts, and mosses, but are entirely absent in liverworts and algae. Fossils of Cooksonium, the first accepted vascular plant, and club mosses go back to the mid-Silurian, after about 430 million years. All early plants were either leafless or had only small spine-like tips, and leaves with broad lamina evolved only in response to a pronounced decline of atmospheric CO2 during the Devonian period between 410 and 363 million years ago. Discovery of fossilized hyphae and spores of glomalian fungi in 460-million-year-old Ordovician chert indicates that fungi were present before the first vascular plants arose. This indicates that the fungus-plant symbiosis, endophysic, 
and mycorrhizal were essential in aiding the invasion of plants into nutrient-poor and desiccation-prone environments. I wonder if there's application for agriculture with that, you know, like with the desertification and the salinization of some of our agricultural soils. I wonder if we could do a callback to some of these Devonian soil, Ordovician soils um, to encourage that symbiosis. Not long after their emergence during the early Devonian period from about 410 million years ago, land plants underwent such a rapid diversification and diffusion that 50 million years later, by the end of the Devonian period, they were the dominant photosynthesizers on land. This evolutionary spurt was quite remarkable because by its end, land plants had solved all challenges associated with terrestrial life. Besides laminate leaves with stomata, they also acquired stems with complex fluid transport, structural tissues that enabled them to reach unprecedented heights, roots for respiratory exchange of gases, and specialized sexual and spore-bearing organs and seeds. Although cellulose was initially just one of the many structural materials, including silica and chitin, an amorphous polysaccharide, the evolution of terrestrial plants selected for its universal presence, and this microfibular polysaccharide now accounts for almost half of all phytomass. Gymnosperms, plants with seeds exposed on the surface of cone scales, including conifers, cycads, ginkophytes, and gentophytes, were the dominant land plants 200 million years ago. The first described angiosperm, or flowering plant, reproducing by forming ovules in an enclosed cavity, is Archaefructus from the Upper Jurassic Strata, about 140 million years old, in China's Lianoning. Angiosperms have been dominant since the mid-Cretaceous, about 90 million years ago. Analyses of the DNA sequence of plastid and nuclear genes from 560 species produced a well-resolved and well-supported phylogenetic tree and demonstrated Amborella trichopoda. Sorry, I spilled tea all over my book. Um, Psychopoda, trichopoda, a shrub of the monotypic family of New Caledonia, is the early extant angiosperm, and that water lilies, or nymphalias, are the next diverging lineage. This conclusion was confirmed by another set of mitochondrial, plastid, and nuclear sequences, all of gymnosperm and angiosperm lineages. Once the basics of photosynthesis became understood during the 19th century, the standard scientific description saw the process of CO2 fixation and O2 evolution. As Tolbert noted, it will not be easy to overcome this 150-year-old dogma. In reality, photosynthesis is a complex process of O2 and CO2 exchange energized by the absorption of specific wavelengths of solar radiation. Excitation of pigment molecules, mainly chlorophylls A and B, and bacterial chlorophylls and carotenoids take place in two different reaction centers located in the photosynthetic or thylakoid membranes inside chloroplasts in specialized leaf, or in some species, also stem cells. Both chlorophyll A and B also have two absorption maxima in narrow bands between 420 and 450 and 630 to 690 nanometers. Photosynthesis is thus directly energized by blue and red light. Both parts of this carbon metabolism are initiated by the dual activities of rubisco, a large water-soluble enzyme that acts as carboxylase as well as oxygenase. In the first role, it catalyzes the addition of CO2 to a 5-carbon compound, 
ribulose 1,5-biphosphate, or RUBP, to form two molecules of a three-carbon compound, three-phosphoglycerate. The sequence of this multi-step C3 reductive photosynthetic carbon cycle was unraveled by Melvin Calvin and his colleagues by the early 1950s. Uh, by the way, there's a very nice figure on page 70 that is the phylogenetic relationships for angiosperms from 1999. It's interesting. In its second role, Rubisco catalyzes the binding of O2 to RUBP to produce 3-phosphoglycerate and a 2-carbon compound of 2-phosphoglycolate during the C2 oxidative photosynthetic cycle. This oxygenation does not appear to be of any use for the plant, but photorespiration, a complicated set of reactions aimed at recovering the reduced carbon and removing phosphoglycolate, is not a separate process. There is just one CO2 and one O2 pool, and the C3 and C2 cycles create a necessary balance for the net exchange of the gases during photosynthesis. Although the idea is controversial, some experimental results with transgenic plants indicate that photorespiration may protect C3 plants from photooxidation among species living under high-intensity light. Because of the relatively low CO2 concentrations and high O2 levels in today's atmosphere, about half of all photosynthetic energy is now used by the C2 cycle. Only a drastic reduction of atmospheric O2 to about 2% or greatly elevated ambient CO2 levels would eliminate C2 cycle losses in C3 plants. Photorespiration is an entirely different process from the nighttime evolution of CO2 by mitochondrial respiration in leaves. In some species, photorespiration may amount to as much, of half as, net, much as half of net photosynthesis. Consequently, both the maximum and average efficiencies of converting sunlight into chemical energy by C3 cycle are rather low, and primary productivities, or the annual increments of phytomass, vary widely with nutritional and climactic factors. Water availability is the most important factor limiting carbon fixation. Photosynthesis entails an extremely lopsided exchange of CO2 and H2O. The difference between the water vapor pressure inside and outside plants is two orders of magnitude higher than the difference between external and internal CO2 levels. As a result, C3 plants need 9 to 1200 moles and some up to 4000 moles of H2O to fix one molecule of CO2. Plants with much higher water utilization energy, using just 4 to 500 moles of H2O for each mole of CO2 fixed, do not initially follow the fixation sequence of the C3 cycle. Instead of reducing CO2 with rubisco, they, the, they use the enzyme phosphoenolpyruvate carboxylase, or PEP, in their mesophyll cells to form oxaloacetate, a four-carbon acid. This acid is reduced to malate, another four-carbon acid, and transported into chloroplasts of the bundle sheath cells where CO2 is recovered by decarboxylation in the C3 cycle. Uh, and there is a very nice picture on page 74 of Krebs. So this is the Rubisco cycle, which mediates both photosynthesis and photorespiration. Plants also differ anatomically from C3 species. The latter have no significant differentiation in mesophyll and bundle sheaths, whereas the vascular conducting tissue of the C4 species is surrounded by a bundle sheath of large, thick-walled cells with chloroplasts. PEB carboxylase has a greater affinity for CO2 than rubisco. Moreover, O2 levels in the bundle sheath are low, whereas CO2 concentrations are near what is required to saturate rubisco, whose oxygenating action is practically eliminated as it catalyzes the C3 cycle. 
All of this results in appreciably higher photosynthetic conversion efficiency than in C3 plants. There is also no light saturation in C4 species, whereas C3 plants saturate at a radiances around 300 W per meter squared. I think that's watts per meter squared. Optimum temperature for net photosynthesis is 15 to 25 degrees C in C3 plants, but 30 to 45 degrees C in C4 varieties. The C4 pathway thus appears to be an obvious adaptation to hot climates and aridity. But Reinfelder et al. discovered that a coastal marine diatom, Thalassiocera weissflogii, also uses C4 photosynthesis to cope with low aquatic concentrations of CO2, and they believe that unicellular C4 assimilation may have predated the evolution of higher C4 plants. Corn, sugarcane, and sorghum are the most important C4 crops and some of the worst weeds, including crabgrass or Digitaria singularis, sanguinalis, Digitaria sanguinalis, also follow this assimilation path. A global comparison of annual phytomass accumulation shows C4 plants taking 11 of the top 12 places. Maximum daily growth rates reported for field crops in grams per meter squared range from just over 50 for corn and sorghum to around 40 for sugarcane, above 35 for rice and potatoes, between 20 and 25 for most legumes, and just short of 20 for wheat. Analyses of carbon isotropes in tooth enamel of large mammals show that their diet was dominated by C3 plants until about 8 million years ago. The subsequent increase in the biomass of C4 plants led to their dominance in equid and other mammalian diets in the Americas, Africas, and parts of Asia by 6 million years ago. This shift is attributed to declining atmospheric CO2 levels related to increased continental weathering. Consequently, the past 7 million years of biospheric evolution have favored the C4 species, whereas rising levels of anthropogenic carbon dioxide are tilting the balance once again in favor of a C3 world. Crassulacean acid metabolism, or CAM, is the other important modification involved to minimize H2 losses. Succulents, crassulacae and cacti, and also some orchids and bromeliads, use CAM by absorbing massive amounts of CO2 during the night, and converting it initially into C4 acids. During the day, with their stomata closed, sunlight energizes decarboxylation of these acids and C fixation into carbohydrates via the reductive pentose phosphate RPP cycle. Unlike in C4 species, these processes are not spatially separated. They take place at different times, but in the same cells. Many CAM plants can totally suspend any gas exchange for weeks, even months. Pineapple, Ananas sativas, aloe, and apuntia are the only notable CAM crops. A high degree of metabolic plasticity among most CAM plants has led Lutice to ask whether there is something like ob obligatory CAM in a given species. I'm not sure why they put that in. Chemolithotrophs. The ability to use atmospheric CO2 as a source of carbon for biosynthesis, energized by oxidation of simple inorganic compounds, is limited to prokaryotes. The first bacterial group using this mode of metabolism was identified by Sergei Nikolaevich Vinogradsky during his studies in Strasbourg. Vinogradsky observed the colorless bacterium Begiatoa accumulating globules of the elemental sulfur in its filaments and correctly interpreted 
Tree of Life. I think I may have missed a couple pages on 80 because of some transcription errors, but we will continue forward. The enormous variety of life on Earth begs for a comprehensible classification for reasons ranging from intellectual curiosity to practical needs. Foundations for this task were laid before the middle of the 18th century, and most of the additions took place before 1900. By the mid-20th century, phylogeny, the term was coined by Ernest Haeckel in 1834 to 1919 in 1866, had become a marginal part of biology preoccupied with physiology, evolution, and genetics. The phylogenetic data that began trickling and then streaming from the new molecular biology beginning in the 1960s reversed this trend. New tools of genetic analysis, specifically, especially automated DNA sequencing and deployment of sophisticated statistical tests, have made it possible to examine both the unity and the diversity of life in unprecedented and astonishing detail. A regrettable but powerful impetus for renewed interest in classification has come from the realization that the biosphere is experiencing a rapid loss of its diversity, driven, unlike all of previous episodes of catastrophic extinction, by the actions of the dominant species. Unless it's that oxygen one from the stromatolites. After noting the milestones of biological classification, I will explain the essentials of RNA sequencing, the preferred method used since the late 1970s to derive new phylogenies that have subverted a number of long-held assumptions about the evolution of life. Not surprisingly, this taxonomic revolution has encountered some pointed criticism, and I will note the strongest arguments offered by both sides of this far from subtle dispute. In closing, I will assess the recent claims concerning the unknown extent of the Earth's biodiversity, which may just be made up of around 3 million species, or which may be an order of magnitude richer than the currently described total. From Linné to SSURNA. As scientific classifications go, the Linnaean system is a venerable one. It arose from the author's useful fascination with the variety of plants, and it was first outlined in 1735 when Carl Linnaeus, a physician and Sweden's most famous naturalist, published the first edition of his Systemus Naturae in Leiden. After he was ennobled in 1757, Linnaeus changed his name to von Linné, for more on God's registrar, see Kerner and Franksmeier, his diligent predecessor, John Ray, whose natural history of plants included more than 18,000 species, is now remembered only in specialist accounts. Ten editions of Systema followed during Linné's lifetime, and although the classification has been superseded in many ways, modified and substantially expanded, its binomial nomenclature and its hierarchical taxonomy remain the dominant way of sorting out the nearly two million named species. Appearance, be it of whole organisms or of some of their parts, has been the guiding choice of Linnaean classification, which orders species into nested categories. These categories, their progressively less inclusive sequences, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, designate rank and hierarchy. Taxa designate named groupings of organisms. They may include a single organism in a monospecific genus, such as a koala, Phascolocartus cinereus, or more than 20,000 species of such a large family as leguminosae. Names of genera or kinds must be unique and duplicate names are avoided in other taxa. Species appearance names must be binomial with both names in Latin or in Latinized form. But the shortcomings of Linnaean classification are obvious, ranging from exclusion to arbitrary criteria. Living organisms were assigned to just two kingdoms, plants and animals. 
minerals were a third inanimate kingdom, and Linnaeus' plant taxonomy, based solely on the appearance of the reproductive system, soon became obsolete. A new kingdom, Protista, was introduced by Haeckel to classify a multitude of relatively simple organisms that appeared to be neither plant nor animal and that had been commonly called protozoa. Some aquatic animals also use photosynthesizing organisms. Sea slugs and giant clams engulf and modify cyanobacteria. And in 1998, Daphne obtusa, the water flea and arthropod, was found to have chloroplasts in its gut. Perhaps the most influential reorganization of multiple kingdom systems that respected this basic divide was the one developed during the late 1950s by Robert Whittaker. Whittaker's system had five kingdoms, prokaryotic monera, eukaryotic protocysta, algae, protozoans, slime molds, and a variety of other aquatic and parasitic organisms, fungi, mushrooms, molds, and lichens, animalia, with or without backbones, and plantae, mosses, ferns, conifers, and flowering plants. Margulis and Schwartz, 1982, became perhaps the most enthusiastic promoters of this classification. Their book came out five years after Carl Weiss began subverting the old classification order by comparisons of ribosomal RNA, a fact that the two authors barely acknowledged by merely stating that some biologists would give a separate kingdom to methanogenic and halophilic bacteria. Weiss provide more than that. His new kingdom of archaeobacteria was not intended to be on the same level as the traditionally accepted kingdoms within the eukaryotes of fungi, plants, and animals. Later, he made the distinction explicit by creating three primary domains or superkingdom categories of archaea, bacteria, and eukarya, thus advocating the third realm of life. His classification met first with considerable resistance, but by the mid-1990s, most biologists had been converted by impeccable evidence that relies on the sequencing of about 1,500 base pairs in universal ribosomal gene that codes for part of the cellular machinery assembling proteins. Weiss's tribulations and eventual triumph are recounted in Morell, 1997. Ribosomes, as already noted in Chapter 2, are the sites of polypeptide production in cells. For details on ribosomes and the synthesis of proteins, see Duvet, 1984, etc. Ribosomal RNA, or rRNA, is present in largely two unbroken strands, one of which, labeled in biochemical literature as 16S in prokaryotes and 18S in eukaryotes, was used by Weiss and Fox as the substrate to produce the oblique oligonucleotide sequences released by digestion with the T1 ribonuclease. The Svedberg unit is used to measure the rate of ultracentrifugal sedimentation, that is, indirectly the molecular size. 16srRNA has about 1540 nucleotides, and this study of oligonucleotides was superseded first by reverse transcriptase sequencing of rRNA and eventually by the polymerase chain reaction cloning of DNAs encoding rRNA. The polymerase chain reaction, whose 1983 discovery by Carrie Mullis was rewarded in 1993 by a Nobel Prize in chemistry, makes it possible to amplify specific sequences of DNA from just a few template molecules. But the initial assumption that replication can extend to DNA going back millions of years proved false. About 100,000 years seems to be the maximum for intact survival. There are several reasons why rRNA makes a good molecular clock. As a very ancient molecule present in the progenonote, it can be found in all living species conserved both in structure and function. Its slow change allows the entire evolutionary spectrum to be studied. And there has been no evidence of its lateral transfer between different species. 
And because even a bacterial cell has 10,000 to 20,000 ribosomes, it is not too difficult to isolate workable amounts of rRNA. Oligonucleotide catalogs generated by rRNA sequencing are compared to determine the degree of relatedness among studied species or used as inputs to a classification program. A variety of advanced statistical methods, maximum parsimony, maximum likelihood, cluster analysis, and computer simulations have been used to construct complex phylogenetic trees and to test hypotheses in evolutionary context. With the diffusion of automated DNA sequencing, it has also become possible to compare complete genomes. The first complete genomes for each of the three domains of life became available in a quick succession starting in 1995, first for bacteria, then for archaeon, methanococcus genus Gii, and the first eukaryote, the budding yeast Saccharomyces cerevisiae. By 2000, there were 30 complete genomes of prokaryotes, including archaeons, archaeoglobus, fulgitis, methanobacterium, thermoautotropium, and thermoplasma acidophilium, a thermoacidophile thriving at pH 2 in an unusual niche of self-heating coal refuse piles, and the ubiquitous bacterium Escheria, Escherichiae coli. And just before the end of 2000 came the complete genome of a flowering plant, a little brassica, Aridopsis thaliana, related to broccoli. Another molecular approach used to reconstruct phylogenetic relationships has used a protein clock, measuring the rate at which proteins change over time. But rather than removing remaining uncertainties and strengthening the emerging consensus, this flood of new genetic information has posed new questions. Earlier expectations that compare phylogenies based on genetic analysis of individual species will make it possible to reconstruct an unambiguously branching tree of life have been replaced with a rather confusing image of an unruly entwined bush hiding many surprises. How many realms? Advocates of genetically-based classification see traditional phylogenies, whether based on obvious macroscopic features or on microscopic structures, as inferior and maintain that only the deciphering of molecular information should guide the reconstruction of relationships among species. That's why Weiss insisted on going against the traditional division of life into prokaryotic and eukaryotic organisms and defined a third kingdom, third domain of life. And there's a very nice picture on page 84. Archaea, bacteria, eukarya. As outlined by Weiss et al., the archaeal domain includes two kingdoms, Eurearchaeota, mostly methanogens, extreme halophiles, and some hypothermophiles, and Crenoarchaeota, defined phylogenetically and including most hypothermophiles and hyperacidophiles. In 1996, rRNA sequences of uncultivated organisms from a hot spring in Yellowstone National Park led to the recognition of a third archaeal kingdom, Carrara Archaeota. Supporters of this new division point out that the distinct classification of archaea now rests on much more than a comparison of rRNA sequences. The availability of the first complete genome sequences revealed that a significant proportion of the archaean genome is composed of unique genes. For example, Methanococcus genaskii shares only 11% of homologies with Haemophilus influenzae and 17% with Mycoplasma genitalium. The domain's unique position is intriguingly illustrated by its way of transcribing DNA using RNA polymerase. Like bacteria, archaea have just a single polymerase RNA, whereas eukarya have three, but it resembles eukaryotic RNA polymerases in its complexity and sequence homo homology. 
In W.F. Doolittle's apt characterization, it is as if the archaea were prepping to become eukaryotes. Unlike bacterial cells, archaea have either ether-linked lipids, archaea have ether-linked lipids and their walls lack murine, and the two domains have differently composed flagella, common organelles for motility among prokaryotes, and different antibiotic sensitivities. And unlike any organism in the other two domains, only archaea are extremely hyperthermophilic, able to metabolize at temperatures exceeding 100 degrees C. Criticism and outright rejection of this genetically based sorting have come from two very different sources. From the advocates of a holistic approach and from a new genetic analysis going beyond SSU rRNA. The first group represents the, resents the setting aside of a separate domain and three new kingdoms for extremophilic microbes, a kingdom each for plants and animals with their enormous outward variety. Margulis, an, elegant, an eloquent adherent of this view, strongly disagrees with the rRNA-based phylogenetic approach and argues that any classification of organisms should be based on the entirety of life forms rather than on any particular characteristic. Taking this perspective, archaea are obviously very similar to bacteria and both are much less like eukaryotes. This similarity now extends to their niches. Archaea, unculturable but detected by the amplification and cloning of rRNA and comparing it with kingdom or family-specific 16S rRNA sequences appear to be common also in such non-extreme environments favored by bacteria as agricultural soils and ocean water. Samples collected during the late austral winter in Antarctic coastal waters have shown that 20 to 34 percent of all prokaryotes and 18 to 30 percent of all picoplankton are composed of archaeal biomass and similarly high shares, 15 to 40 percent of archaea in picoplankton, have been found in Puget Sound in the northwest Pacific. Archaea appear to be no less abundant in greater depths. Carner et al. discovered that offshore Hawaii Crena archaeota accounted for more than one-third of all DNA containing picoplankton at depths below one kilometer. And archaea, either as single-species aggregates or in consortia with metabolically interdependent bacteria, are also abundant in anoxic ocean sediments where they consume more than 80% of all CH4, produced deep below the ocean floor. Margulis concluded that the creation of the two prokaryotic groups obscures the diversity of the four other kingdoms in her preferred classification. Perhaps the most dismissive critic of the three realms is Ernst Meyer, who faults Voice's cladistic approach on many points, but the two arguments but two arguments carry the greatest weight. Meyer believes that the eukaryotic acquisition of a nucleus and the accompanying features was perhaps the most important evolutionary event in the whole history of life. A reality, a reality militating against subdividing prokaryotes. And he stresses that even combined bacterial and archaeal species diversity is only a small fraction of eukaryotic richness, and hence the principle of balance clearly favors combining the two prokaryotic groups. Unfortunately, his critique also included such irrelevant barbs as, here it must be remembered that Weiss was not trained as a biologist and quite naturally does not have an extensive familiarity with the principles of classification. In contest, Drapo no noted that the grand diversity of the eukaryotes may simply be a human bias. Weiss countered Meyer's arguments by stressing that the disagreement is not actually about classification. It concerns the nature of biology itself. Dr. Meyer's biology reflects the last billion years of evolution, mine, the first three billion. 
His is the biology of visual experience, of direct observation. Mine cannot be directly seen or touched. It is the biology of molecules, of genes, and their inferred history. For me, evolution is primarily the evolutionary process, not its outcomes. The second source of questioning of the three realms has come from our expanding genetic understanding. New phylogenies have been searching for the Senna ancestor, the most recent common ancestor of all existing organisms, and mapping the subsequent branching of the evolutionary tree. Initially, our RNA-based analyses supported a triple branch tree-like structure with bacteria and archaea forming the two lower branches and eukarya diverging first to the diplomonads, microsporidia, and slime molds, eventually to animals and plants, at the top. But by the late 1990s, it became clear that molecular classifications do not converge on any clearly identifiable tree with sequential branching. Whole genomes present a rather untidy picture as many archaea contain a substantial store of bacterial genes and nuclear genes in eukaryotes derived from both bacteria and archaea. This means that the cellular evolution has not been solely a vertical process, but has been repeatedly affected by lateral or horizontal transfers of individual genes, perhaps even of entire genomes. As a result, prokaryotes have received a significant share of their genetic diversity through the acquisition of sequences from distantly related organisms, and eukaryotes are chimeras, organisms containing genetic material from a variety of ancestral lineages. The latest evidence has thus both uprooted the traditional Darwinian tree of life, for there is no single cell at the root, and radically changed its appearance. Tree-like branches are seen only at the top levels of eukaryotic diversity, but below them is a tangle caused by rampant lateral gene transfers and arising not from a single Senna ancestor, but from a community of primitive cells. Assessing biodiversity. An entirely different debate concerning life's diversity began at the same time we started to challenge the traditional classification of organisms. Although the answers to its two questions, how diverse is life in terms of individual species and what rate this biodiversity is declining because of human actions, rest largely on simple counting rather than on a sophisticated molecular analysis, consensus has been elusive. Answers to the first question range from less than 2 to more than 30 million, and those to the second from an unprecedented rate of extinction to a regrettable but far from catastrophic diminution of life's diversity. I will deal with this loss in some detail in Chapter 9, and in Chapter 8, I will review the relationships between biodiversity and function, productivity and resilience of ecosystems. Here I will concentrate on the extent, attributes, and preconditions of biodiversity. The first edition of Systema Naturae listed about 4,000 species. The tenth contained about 9,000 binomial plant and animal names. The half-million mark was suppressed before 1880, and a century later the class the count was close to 1.4 million, and a major international review sponsored by the UNEP concluded that about 1.75 million species had been scientifically described by the mid-1990s. Metazoa, with about 1.2 million, or 68% of species, dominate. Plants, including algae, add 310,000 species, or 18%. Fungi at 72,000 or 4%, and prokaryotes just 4,000 or a mere 0.2%. The vertebrate count stands at about 45,000, including just over 4,600 mammals. There are some suggestions for additional reviews if we wanted to talk about Earth's biodiversity. Obviously, that seems very biased, right? Like, I'm sure that the pyramid is actually reversed, um, and we just haven't paid that much attention to the non-sexy animals.
or plants. There are obviously many more species than the number described so far. Most of these unknown organisms are concentrated among arthropods and prokaryotes, particularly in habitats that have been difficult to access, whether deep crustal rocks, tall rainforest canopies, or deep ocean sediments. As for this last habitat, less than 1% of species living there are known, and the difference between the described and estimated total for benthic bacteria may be more than three orders of magnitude. Hayward and Watson opted for an ultimate total of 13.6 million living species, and this count would require a higher number of insects and an order of magnitude higher. This count would require a number of insects and order of magnitude higher, 8 million versus the described 950,000, a 20-fold increase in the fungal count, and a 250-fold enlargement of the bacterial and archaeal total to 1 million species. Irwin's studies of tropical forests, canopy insects in Panama led him to estimate that there are 30 million insect species alone, and some published guesses of the total species count have been as high as 80 million. Irwin's extrapolation was based on samples obtained by insecticidal fogging of a few high canopies in Panama. But Gatson pointed out that estimates of 30 to 50 million insect species seem incompatible with the best available taxonomic, taxonomic and ecological information and suggests the most feasible total to be about 5 million. Regrettably, our ignorance is such that we cannot offer reasonably constrained estimates with a high degree of confidence. Whatever the actual species total might be, the existing global workforce of about 7,000 systemists, especially with the decline of systemic studies at many universities, is entirely inadequate to describe and classify the declining tropical biodiversity. Several major conclusions will not change with any further additions to the current list of species. Increases in the number of individuals encompassed by a count and in the size of the sampled area result in higher diversity. Large contiguous areas are more diverse than small and especially remote islands. Diversity has a pronounced latitudinal gradient. Tropical rainforests and tropical and subtropical coral reefs are the biosphere's richest ecosystems. The richest tropical rainforests have more than 200 species per hectare, and records from the Eucadorian and Peruvian Amazon, Amazon are respectively 307 and 289 species. In contrast, there are about 700 native species in all of North America. Consequently, the countries harboring the greatest biodiversity, Brazil, Colombia, Peru, Bolivia, Mexico, Congo, Madagascar, Indonesia, and Australia, are situated entirely or partially between the two tropics. So naturally, most of the biodiversity hotspots or areas harboring extraordinary concentrations of endemic species that have exceptionally high rates of habitat loss are there. The diversity of terrestrial species, including freshwater organisms, is greater than that of marine life. But the reverse is true for animal phyla. All but one of them are present in the ocean, but only about half are found on land or in lakes and rivers, and diversity is highly unevenly distributed at all taxonomic levels. Key factors promoting hyperdiversity are small size, metamorphism, herbivory, specialized parasitism, and relatively rapid mobility. Not surprisingly, insects possessing all of these attributes are the most hyperdiverse of organisms. With some 950,000 species, they account for nearly 90% of all arthropods, the most hyperdiverse animal phylum, and far more than half of all described organisms. In turn, beetles, Coleoptera, with at least 350,000 species, are the most diverse insect order. Coevolution between beetles and flowering plants has been proposed as the best explanation of this extraordinary diversity, as numerous opportunities for specialized herbivory were added to older modes of detritivory and fungivory. 
Labandera and Sepkowski concluded that the great radiation of modern insects that began 250 million years ago was not accelerated by the expansion of flowering plants during the Cretaceous period, as the basic trophic modes of insects were in place 100 million years before any angiosperms appear in the fossil record. Other notable examples of hyperdiversity are rodents, the richest mammalian order, and orchids, the most diverse monocotyledonous plant diversity, plant family. Biodiversity is a fundamentally multidimensional concept, and hence no single variable can measure it objectively. Wilson and Perlman, Whitaker, divided the total diversity within a large area, Y diversity, gamma diversity, into local alpha diversity, the number of species in a specified area, and the turnover of species between habitats or locality, beta diversity. Shannon's diversity index measures how individuals are apportioned within a particular area. Purvis and Hector offer another useful threefold division of commonly used biodiversity measures into numbers of species or population richness, evenness, the extent to which individuals are spread evenly among species, and difference, disparity and character diversity of phenotypes among the species indicators. As defined by the Convention of Biological Diversity, the concept should encompass diversity within species, between species, and of ecosystems. Genetic differences between the individuals of a species can be analyzed along a continuum ranging from nucleotide sequences to obvious macroscopic or functional traits, and variability can be assessed both within and between populations. Although the total species count has attracted most of the research attention, there is no comprehensive listing for all of the described species, and the knowledge of their niches and life histories ranges from excellent to rudimentary. Appraisals of economic diversity can encompass categories ranging from populations to continental-scale biomes. What we need, above all, given the rate at which species have been disappearing, is to know how many species or functional groups are needed for good ecosystem functioning. I will have more to say on this in chapters 8 and 9. Surviving Recurrent Catastrophes Existing biodiversity has always just been a transient reality to be changed, either gradually or abruptly, by extensive extinctions of not just individual species, but whole families, and by the evolution of new organisms. Although we now have many ways, have in many ways quite remarkably detailed accounts of such changes during the Phanerozoic era, we have much less confidence in explaining the causes of those developments. I will note briefly the mechanisms and effects of both kinds of these catastrophes, ranging from relatively slow but often long-lasting climatic changes to encounters with ex extraterrestrial bodies. I will not look at these changes against the background of the new catastrophism, which is, with its emphasis on discontinuities and sudden qualitative changes evident in the geological record, so much in conflict with the classic Darwinian belief of uniformitism, uniformitarianism, the process of gradual incremental evolutionary shifts. I call attention to recurrent catastrophes in the biosphere's evolution in order to emphasize life's admirable resilience. Surface life has come very close to extinction on a number of occasions, and yet the biosphere eventually emerged from these global close calls and from other less momentous catastrophes richer. Indeed, Cortiliat and Gardner, Gardner concluded that large Mass extinctions that came after a long period of stability seem to have been followed by a larger equilibrium level of diversity, biodiversity.
Climate changes range from gradual and moderate warming to cooling to truly catastrophic excursions, and some of these extreme events can take place within surprisingly short, at least on geological timescales, periods of time, and can be followed by equally extreme reversals. The earliest episode of Snowball Earth, some 2.3 billion years ago, was associated with the rise of atmospheric O2 levels, which precipitated a global cooling by conversion of previously high concentrations of methane. By far the most pronounced repeat of catastrophic cooling happened during the Neoproterozoic between 750 and 580 million years ago. At that time, the combination of small continents scattered near the equator and increasing rainfall accelerated erosion and the removal of atmospheric CO2, triggering a deviation amplifying process of global cooling. The most extreme hypothesis for explaining neoproterozoic event posits a conversion to snowball earth within a millennium as an average global temperature of negative 50 degrees C put even oceans under more than one kilometer of ice. Only the sturdiest prokaryotes, perhaps akin to today's oscillatorian cyanobacteria, perennially frozen into Antarctic ice and revived for just days or weeks in late summer when meltwaters form on or in the ice, could have survived that event. Eventual accumulation of volcanic CO2 triggered about of warming, with average temperatures rising to 50 degrees C. Other simulations of the event see a less extreme outcome with an equatorial belt of open water that would have provided refuge for multicellular organisms. None of the subsequent ice ages have come close to the Neoproterozoic freeze, but life has been imperiled at other times for other reasons. Most notably, the late Permian mass extinction of 250 million years ago brought the rapid demise of more than half the families of marine genera and more than 90% of all marine species as the immobile Paleozoic sea bottom community dominated by brachiopods, bryozoans, and crinoids were replaced with mollusk-dominated ecosystems. The terrestrial effect was similarly quick and widespread, with 70% of vertebrate genera disappearing and a massive loss of rooted plants. Massive volcanic activity that ejected close to 2 million cubic kilometers of lava and created the vast basaltic Siberian traps appears to be the most obvious cause of this mass extinction. Giant volcanic eruptions have been linked with a number of other major extinctions during the past 500 million years. But because dates for both basalt floods and extinctions cannot be narrowed to less than a few million years, other explanations must be considered. They include the injection of CO2 into superficial environments by the overturn of anoxic deep oceans, a consequence of reduced greenhouse gas effect and the resulting growth of ice sheets and sea ice, and global warming so potent that it killed most of the plant life. Explanations of more recent ice ages have relied heavily on astronomical theory linking the eccentricity of the Earth's orbit to changes in insulation and climate. This link, never close as originally claimed, now appears to be much more complex. Henderson and Slowly's dating for the end of the penultimate ice age confirms orbital, or, orbitally driven deglaciation either in the southern hemisphere or in the tropics, but not in the northern hemisphere. Recent findings also indicate a surprisingly high frequency of abrupt climate changes, some taking place in less than a decade during, last, during the last 100,000 years. And yet, counterintuitively, the link between climate and evolution has not been all that strong. The best available evidence shows the rate at which new species have been accumulating throughout the Phanerozoic era eon has been virtually consistent at about 400 per million years. Other research confirms that that rate may have been roughly constant. 
The conclusion is in contrast to the long-held belief that biodiversity has increased substantially during the past 250 million years. At the same time, there is abundant proof that climactically induced changes, including the quaternary ice ages, have had major genetic consequences through colonization and mixing of species. And a more detailed look at the fossil evidence of mammalian evolution in the past 80 million years shows that since the diversity of mammals rose sharply during the 10 million years following the Cretaceous low, it has settled into an oscillation around more or less a stable plateau, with almost no correlations with numerous climactic shifts of the past 50 million years. Recent millennia have been climactically benign, unusually stable, and thankfully devoid of any massive basalt flows or sustained series of volcanic eruptions. But one study of an ecosystem's destruction by Krakatoa's 1883 eruption and its subsequent recovery demonstrates the capacity for life's impressive comeback on a local scale. Encounters in space. The Earth is constantly showered with myriads of microscopic dust particles and with larger bits of universal debris. Although the latest reevaluation shows that there are only about half as many near-Earth asteroids with diameters larger than one kilometer as previously estimated, the chances of destructive encounters remain very high. Once every thousand years comes an object with a diameter of 100 meters, leaving behind such impressive craters as Arizona's famous Behringer. Once every million years arrives a two-kilometer object whose impact is equivalent to one megaton of trinitrotoluene and is felt globally. And once every 100 million years, the Earth is jolted by an asteroid or a comet 10 kilometers across. Such impacts equivalent to more than 10 to the 8th megatons TNT leave behind multi-ring craters with diameters in excess of 150 kilometers and a biosphere transformed by immense tsunamis huge volumes of debris floating in the atmosphere, acid rain, reduced isolation in temperatures, and extensive fires. More than 60 large diameters in excess of 10 kilometers impact craters have been discovered so far, most being younger than 200 million years. Erosion, sedimentation, metamorphosis of rock, and plate tectonics have combined to eliminate the record of numerous impacts that took place during the Archean EM. One of the three known craters with diameters in excess of 150 kilometers is Vredefort in South Africa, is deeply eroded. Another one, Sudbury in Ontario, is tectonically deformed. The structure of the Chicxulub crater buried under 300 to 1100 meters of tertiary carbonate rocks in the northern Yucatan Peninsula was reconstructed by means of gravimetric and magnetometric investigations and its identification bolstered the most famous theory about the consequences of large impacts on the biosphere, an explanation of a mass extinction that occurred 65 million years ago. Long a matter of speculation, this extinction, exemplified by the demise of the dinosaurs on land and ammonites in the sea, was attributed by Alvarez to a collision with a large asteroid. A thin iridium layer deposited at the Cretaceous-Tertiary KT boundary discovered by the Walter Alvarez near the Italian town of Gubbio was the main evidence of the impact. A subsequent search uncovered many similar layers, as well as quartz lamellae, considered clear signs of impact worldwide. Iridium is extremely rare in the Earth's crust, but it is a constituent of space objects. The postulated mode of extinction was a global shroud of impact-generated dust that led to drastically reduced photosynthesis. Identification of the impact site a decade after the theory was published provided a seemingly incontrovertible confirmation. The crater was first noticed because of a concentric pattern in gravity and magnetic field data, and its transient cavity was eventually determined to be about 100 kilometers across, 
with the outermost ring being about 195 kilometers in diameter. If an asteroid created this crater, it had a diameter of about 12 kilometers. If a comet did it, it was 10 to 14 kilometers across, depending on its impact velocity. The transient cavity was 35 to 40 kilometers deep, with the maximum depth of excavation 12 kilometers, and the maximum uplift of the transient crater rim was about 8 kilometers. But the Chicxulub discovery did not, disclose, did not close the debate on the KT extinction. The controversy generated by the Alvarez theory has led to a large number of publications ranging from emphatic endorsement to caustic dismissal. Regrettably, Alvarez offers neither an adequate review of the counterarguments nor a refutal of them. The initially proposed killing mechanism of blocking out sunlight and drastically reducing photosynthesis is considered too simple. Acid rain from the mass of sulfur injected into the atmosphere or from nitrogen compounds generated by shock heating of the atmosphere, loss of a part of the atmosphere, immense wildfires, and CO2 released by the impact are among the extinction mechanisms now suggested. Critics see iridium anomalies and extinctions as two fundamentally different phenomena and point out a stair-step pattern of extinction before the end of the Cretaceous. Sudden mortality is thus an illusion, and the impact hypothesis is not necessary to account for the extinctions. I particularly identify with Ager's 1993 sentiment concerning dinosaurs. Always it comes back to the extinction of the dinosaurs. I must admit to being a little tired of those stupid great beasts. Their importance, in my view, is grossly exaggerated. Like all large animals, dinosaurs were exceptionally vulnerable to extinction, however caused, and they were very much in decline before the end of the Cretaceous, with only a handful of known, total of some 350 genera alive by the period's end. Massive volcanic eruptions are a more likely cause of the extinction, as they would inject enough sulfur and CO2 in the atmosphere to generate extremely acid rains and cause global warming, and a long period of intensive volcanic activity could also explain the iridium enrichment. The event also had a curiously limited effect on birds and mammals. Combined molecular and paleontological evidence shows a mass survival of birds across the KT boundary and incremental changes rather than any explosive post-impact radiation for both birds and mammals. In any case, the biosphere has had to cope with at least a score of such events, and none of them were crippling enough to terminate it. Neither were high-energy bursts from nearby supernova, the solar system is with 100 parsecs of a supernova explosion every 2 million years, and within 10 parsecs only once every 2 billion years. Every explosion releases 2.5 times 10 to the 28th megatons of TNT equivalent, and during the past 500 million years there should have been as many as 10 events exposing the biosphere to 500 rotogens, lethal to most vertebrates, but there is no obvious record of such supernova-related disruptions.